Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Expect anything different. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up Podcast. I am Chris Solomon. Uh, recording this today on Tuesday, July 26th. It's PGA Championship Week. Um, I'm a terrible planner of podcasts and actually ended up getting starting the day with zero guests and ending up with three. Um, so I'm breaking this up into two parts. This first part is going to include uh, Jake Nichols from the 15th Club, uh, who does excellent statistical analysis. I really, really enjoyed talking to him. He's definitely going to be back on the podcast for a longer session. Um, he'll help with our understanding of stats, and I think you'll find it really entertaining. Uh, as well from Scratch TV, DJ Pihowski joined me. Um, didn't have a lot of background on Baltusrol, as he admitted, but uh, we talked a little bit about some of the narratives going on in golf, uh, previewed a little bit of the PGA Championship. Um, so getting to both those interviews here soon, I want to say a quick few, couple things. Um, doing a preview this week um, on nolangup.com that is going to include some mailbag questions. I'm also planning to record a podcast tomorrow that just answers some of the questions I didn't get to, and I'm also doing a, the third and final piece of this preview with Shane Bacon where we're going to draft our picks for the week and settle our bets. i got to apologize to Shane. I am behind. I owe him two bets. Um, unfortunately, I'll get to some of the details when I actually talk to Shane. But uh, uh, if you guys could take a second for our loyal listeners, um, a lot of time, a lot of effort goes into making these podcasts. Uh, taking two minutes out of your day to leave a review in iTunes helps us tremendously. You have no idea how much that does help us uh, in the rankings and whatnot. Uh, if you could take a couple minutes and do that, that would be of great appreciation from all of us here at No Laying Up. But uh, thank you again for tuning into the podcast. Uh, we're going to start with Jake, and then about the 35-minute mark or so, DJ is going to come in uh, and help take us home. So thanks for tuning in. A rare double guest podcast, and just now realizing today that this is the first time we've done this. Um, he is the head of golf intelligence for the 15th Club. His name is Jake Nichols. Uh, you may have seen his work previously on golf.com. He also has his own website, which is golfanalytics.wordpress.com. Uh, without a doubt, I'd say the smartest golf statistical analysis analyst uh, that I follow on Twitter. Uh, Jake, what's going on, man? Nothing much, Chris. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm ready for another major championship. I'm very unprepared for this one, I must say. Um, didn't have much time after the Open. The Open took a lot of energy out of me like it did the rest of us. I uh, just spoke a little bit with DJ Pihowski. Neither of us really know anything about Baltus Roll, so I am relying on you to just carry me across the finish line here and uh, break down what for what we can expect, uh, both from what you know about Baltus Roll and what, whatever you may know from a stats perspective about what we can expect this week. Uh, first thing is it's par 70, and it's really long for even for a par 70, so... I think you're going to see much more U.S. Open flavor to the course this year. Um, so Baltusrol actually hosted a U.S. Open or two before, I think. So it's kind of part of the PGA of America's uh, push to get par 70 courses, the longer U.S. Open type courses, into the into the rotation. So uh, 
it's not quite as stretched out like as Whistling Straits or Kiowa, which are the, the more modern, insanely long courses. Uh, but definitely a lot of par fours that are 485, 500. And uh, the par fives aren't really, only one of them is really reachable. I think there was a story the last time the, the event was here in 2005, only one person was able to get to the green and two on, on number 17. So it's about 650 yards. So definitely a long, long test. Um, one where the, the long irons are going to have to be really, really, really sharp. So when you, I was interested, you started by saying that as a par 70, but um, when you look at, when you're, you're analyzing your, the stats that you do, do you, like, to me, the par of the course doesn't really matter much at all, right? I mean, it, the yardage of it and the way it sets up and that if, yeah, our player's going to be hitting long irons or, I mean, some of these, the way the USGA sets up courses, several, usually they just change the par of a couple holes. They either shorten it a little bit and change the par. I know at least two of the holes on the front nine, I think, are par fives for the members. They just change to par fours. But, I mean, does that does that change your analysis at all as to who you think the course might fit based on what the par of the course is? Yeah, I look at it to a degree because what you'll see is, is uh, guys will play par fives differently if they're called par fives rather than par fours. Okay. You know, you have those, the, the U.S. Open half par holes, which are really just 510-yard par fours where they want guys to make bogey. And guys will play those holes differently. Um, you know, the strategy will be a little less aggressive um, on the par fours. So I definitely look at it, and I look at, for certain players, they'll they'll tend to play better if there's more par fives in front of them, more opportunity to really separate themselves from the field on those, you know, 250-yard shots into the green on par fives. So I definitely look at it to a degree. Okay. Well, this is this is what I feared because uh, I, I, I always fear or I, whenever, like, I share something or, or post something and you share it, I'm like, okay, I must actually be right here. I must be onto something here. But I've been adamant that, uh, the par of the hold matters not at all, and it gets in the players' heads. I guess the only effect that I think that it has is that it gets in guys' heads, and it has a psychological effect, but it has no real outcome on the tournament because everyone's playing the same exact holes. The par of the hole doesn't matter. Do you at least agree with that? And is your, I guess the only difference you see is that guys do play holes differently based on what the par of the hole is. Well, yeah, if, if, you, call a, if you call those U.S. Open par fours the 500-yard par fours, par fives, then it really doesn't matter in terms of the scoring. It's when, if you, you know, added another tee box and stretched it out to 550 yards and called it a par five, then that kind of changes things. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Well, I should guess we probably should have started with this, but tell me a little bit about this, the 15th club. I really, I'll admit I don't know much about it. Um, is this a new project for you? Is it, how did this start or what, what can you give us a bit of background of what's going on there? Yeah, it was, uh, I was approached by, um, members of 21st club, which is a soccer consultancy Mm -hmm. that works with, uh, European football clubs. And they had an opportunity to, uh, work with players, uh, in golf and they brought me along and that's what we've been, we've been operating since the end of last summer. So we help players out really any way that you can use numbers to assist 
um, assist players to really help them win more, help them perform better, all that sort of stuff. So is, it, is the focus on professional players then? Is it is consulting specifically for them? Yeah, right now our focus is is PGA Tour and European Tour players. Okay. And uh, it's, just it's, to start out. Yeah, I guess is the future of that then. I, I don't know about direct consulting with amateur players, but is it basically building statistical models or, or some kind of uh, analysis that will help the help – the uh, average players understand what their weaknesses, strengths are? Is that is that kind of the plan in the future? I think in the future, the, the type of work we do, some of it certainly can extend to amateur college level, uh, like mini tour level pros. And honestly, that, that level is where you might see the biggest effects. If you can turn a player who's you know a mini tour level talent into someone who's playing on the PGA Tour, they're earning potential Go, you know, skyrockets mm-hmm. from just getting by to, you know, you're talking about uh, reaping the benefits of Tiger Woods to a million dollars a year. You got to pay the Tiger tax on that, though. But exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, so, okay. Well, I want to get into some a little bit more specific questions, and I got to apologize in advance because I didn't warn you on any of these. So, if you don't have uh, analysis right right offhand, then uh, then that is a for, it's a forgivable offense, I believe. But um, a lot of people, I feel like a lot of people are talking about Rory going into this week for a myriad of different reasons. He's on the tip of my tongue as far as guys that I think um, that I think this course favors. Uh, in the only uh, the only insight I have into Baltusrol is talked to a couple of players and they just had mentioned that it's right there in front of you and they think it's going to favor longer players. Um, and one guy mentioned the three names he mentioned to me. He might have just been reading off the top of the odds sheet, but he mentioned Rory Day and Dustin Johnson, and just saying it's a pretty simple course. Expect the top guys to play well at it. Um, so, so it, go, looking back though at Rory for this year, obviously he hasn't won. He definitely has not won a major. What do you see in your stats and your analysis as to the level at which he's competed this year compared to prior years? Is it as drastic as a lot? Some people in the media seem to want to make it, or is it um, a little bit overblown? Uh, I think there's a few things with Rory this year. Uh, first is he hasn't really hit the incredible heights that we see him hit a few times a year yet this season. Uh, like if you look at his top 10 or top 20 tournaments that he's played in his life, I don't think any of them are from 2016. Mm -hmm. Um, but if you break it down even further and you just look at how well he's played week to week, um, I posted this on Twitter yesterday and it's been since March that he's gone more than one tournament without finishing top five. Wow. And just his his level of, of overall performance, um, he's played sort of, I like to break it down into, did you play well enough to win this week? Did you play like an elite player would play this week? Um, or did you not reach those levels? And he's at 70% at, at least an elite player uh, this season. And just as a comparison, Spieth, Day, DJ, Stenson are all around 30 to 50%. Wow, interesting. So so on a week-to-week basis, Rory has been as good as anyone in the world. And I think in terms of overall performance, he's right there with DJ and Jason Day this year. But he hasn't really hit the heights yet. Okay, that adds up for me. Um, would you say, is there any um, part of his game that in particular, is lacking this year. I know that there's been some changes in his putting grip. Um, I would, without looking at the numbers in front of me, I would say he's putted the ball very well, but is there anything 
Um, it, se- it seems to me when he's dominating, it's his driver that is like really at DJ levels, like we saw at the U.S. Open when he's winning. Is that lacking a bit this year, or what is um, what is the biggest difference for, to make him not reach those elite levels that you that you mentioned? Uh, if you look at just PGA Tour strokes gain stats, he's number one in driving, which is what we expect. Uh, his, he has a really good short game this year, and uh, he's putting it about as well or a little bit better than he has in the last few years. And the big, uh, the big difference has been iron play. Hmm. So from 100 yards out, wedges and irons, he's been a little off from, from like the, the heights of 2012 and 2014. Um, so that's really what I'm seeing in his game. It's just, uh, it doesn't seem like he can put everything together in a week. There's a few of those tournaments. I think at Doral's definitely, and, uh, one or two other events where if he had made one or two putts, he would have been in much better position to win. Uh, but just nothing, all four elements haven't really clicked yet for him. Okay. I think what you're saying about you know driving the ball well, putting it better than he typically does, and not hitting the irons well, would you agree that you could say the same thing for one of the another top play, young player in the game, Jordan Spieth? Yeah, it's it's very similar. Uh, Spieth is is putting great this year, and he's driving it pretty well. And it's been the iron play all year that's really uh, really hindered him from hitting from hitting the heights of last year. But that's something you often see if you look at several years of players' data. Uh, when they have their peak season, it's often because they hit their irons really well. Okay. Like they hit the, uh, maybe they find you know the groove in their swing or something is really repeatable for six months. Um, but that's often what you see, and that's one of the things. Last year, Spieth had a career year with the irons. Um, he was almost top 10 or maybe top 10 in strokes gained on approach shots. And this year he's like outside the top 100. Yeah, he's negative strokes gained on the uh, approaching the green this this season. So Yeah, and you can see if you compare those with 2015, everything else in his game is right in line. It's just he hasn't been able to find that iron swing that he had last year. Is that something though that can that you would expect to vary greatly year over year? The iron play. I know you said that the the the, the strong iron play correlates the best with with um, guys' career seasons. But is it usual to see a big fluctuation like this without really the rest of his game being affected? It, to me, it's like if you're struggling with your swing, that's going to be reflected both in the way you drive the ball and the way you strike your irons. Is that also an incorrect assumption? Um. From what I see in the data when I look at it, driving is always um, it's always more repeatable from year to year because half of it is how well you or how long you hit the ball, and that doesn't change much. Yeah. Um, so it's more it's more repeatable in that sense. The actual accuracy part isn't necessarily more repeatable. Okay. Yeah. If that makes sense. No, it definitely does make sense. Um, so uh, this is this, I think most people would also agree. I, I, I just I'm, I'm throwing these top guys at you because I'm f- kind of fascinated because we talk about these guys so much, and everyone has something to say about them. Yet we don't. Uh, I don't think get the 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 analysis or the understanding that I'm not saying that your analysis is better than anyone else's out there, but I just don't think anyone gets the statistical understanding that you do. So I'm really fascinated. 
to see, I think if I look at DJ's stats for this year, this has obviously been his breakout year. He's number one in strokes game total, number two in strokes game T to green. Um, but I, wanna, I wanted to ask you about the narrative that seems to be out there that DJ is a poor putter um, and is having a great putting year. He is having a good putting year. He's 34th in strokes game putting for the year. But is DJ historically, would you consider him a poor putter? I don't think. I, from what I can recall, he's normally in the positive mm-hmm. for putting. He I, is, I would definitely characterize him as someone who the putting is not a critical factor for him in terms of his his year-to-year game. It's critical in that when he puts really well, he's he's going to be in very good shape to win. But it's not something that's a huge part of his game. And I'm paging back through his stats right now, and he's normally a little below average or a little above average. Yeah, I remember I actually did this, and it didn't stand out enough to me. But I think I looked it up like the last 10 years. He was three years or maybe four years. He was negative strokes game putting. Um, but I mean, yeah, and when you look at 2016, he's having a good year putting in terms of he's putting probably better than you would otherwise expect him to. Yep. Um, so that's that, that kind of drives why he's playing a little bit better than he has in the past few years. And I'm looking, flipping through the stats as well, and he's almost always a top five driver of the ball. Go back to 2013, he was 39th in strokes gained off the tee, but all the other years he was top five, except for 2012, he was sixth, number one in 2011. I mean, obviously that, that's his biggest weapon. Um, now, when I watch Jason Day play, the thing that sticks out to me is how far he hits the ball and his ball striking, but if I'm looking at the numbers don't totally back that up. I mean, he's definitely not a poor ball striker. He's 17th strokes gained tee to green, but um, he's ninth around the green. And then off the tee, he's 41st and approaching the green, 61st. Talking about the number one ranked player in the world. I think you and I would both agree that um, while strokes gained putting is obviously extremely important, the, the, the best players in the game, almost it strongly correlates to how well they, are, they fare in strokes gained tee to green. Um, but it seems like Day is actually not having the most impressive season striking the ball from long distance. Um, is what we're seeing out of him potentially have the risk of fading, or do you expect him to start striking the ball perhaps a little bit better than he currently is, and maybe his putting uh, regresses back to the norm, or what do you see out of Jason Day? I think uh, there's a few interesting things about him. I think he is one of the guys who is most similar to Phil Mickelson in that it seems like some weeks he doesn't, he isn't entirely focused on winning. Uh, he's more focused on on peaking. You saw this at the beginning of the year. He had taken some time off with his family, didn't touch the clubs for months, and he came out. and The beginning of the season wasn't anything special. It wasn't bad, but it really wasn't until they got to Florida and he won a few times that he really hit his stride. So I think if you take the portion of the season where you could tell that he really cared about competing and winning year to year, his, his strokes gain stats would look a little bit better, but he's definitely having a freakish putting year. He's making everything outside of 15 feet. 
Yeah, I mean, he was sixth in strokes game putting last year. I mean, he's always been an a, a above average putter, but yeah, it, it, this to me it seems a bit more like a statistical anomaly to be putting to be gaining over a stroke uh, putting. Even some of the best putters for the, you know the guys that are year over year the best putters, Steve Stricker and whatnot. Those guys don't seem it's not a consistent thing you can do is gain over a stroke uh, per year on the greens. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, a stroke is is up there in the the unbelievable territory for a full year. Um, but Jason Day has also shown the ability throughout his career to really make long putts. Yeah. Um, I think Jordan Spieth has that reputation, but in terms of Jason Day making the truly long ones, the 30 or 40 footers, I think for the last five years, he's above average from that length in four years. And it's like, very much above average. He's almost at 10% from outside 25 feet this year. That's ridiculous. <laughs> so those are the those are the putts where if you make one, you're pl- you're picking up a stroke right there. Okay. Um, okay, so I've been just grilling you on the individual players, and you did very good knowing that information off the top of your head. Uh, I wanted to ask you about a stat that I, I think I can credit you in saying that you created, um, I, I don't know what you exactly call it, but it's something along the lines of wins expected, and it's... Uh, Basically, if, if, if I can try to summarize it myself, it's uh, uh, based on how a certain player has performed like in one particular event, you weight what the likelihood of it being that they would win that tournament. And the, the first time I remember you doing this is you actually did this piece for our site um, that you were analyzing Ricky Fowler, and it, the analysis showed that uh, before his break-ish out year in 2015, um, the reason he only had one tour win is some of his best performances came against the strongest fields, and he ran up against guys that also had stellar performances. Can you talk a bit about what that stat means um, and h- how you use it functionally? Sure. Uh, it basically, what I look at, one of the main stats I look at is how many strokes did you beat the field by? So for a normal tour winner it's around 15 or 16 strokes over the four rounds so if the field shot even par on a par 72 course 288 strokes then the average winner will take about 272 strokes Mm -hmm. and so if you look at say just normal pga tour events if you beat the field by 10 strokes you're almost never going to win uh it would take you know, some freakish circumstances. Um, maybe the leaders collapse in the final round and, you know, maybe there's weird weather or something like that, but that's never going to win. And if you look at the the opposite of that, if you play as well as Stenson did and beat the field by 27 strokes, <laughs> you're always going to win, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's basically about drawing the line of, at 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 strokes versus the field, how likely are you historically to win? And like I said, if around 16, 15 strokes, you're about 50, 50 to win. And once you start to get closer to 20 strokes, you're, you know, 90, 95% to win. It's almost like strokes gained wins or like wins gained uh, versus the field almost, right? I mean, that's kind of the, the thought process that goes behind strokes gained and that, uh, what's a what's a uh, from eight feet? It is a, a tour player's fifty percent chance of making a putt. So when they make it, it's they gain a half stroke. If they miss it, they lose a half shot. So it's kind of what it sounds like. It makes a lot of sense. You touched on it briefly 
so it's, it sounds like your analysis says that, uh, st- or st- I guess any analysis would show that Stenson beat the field by 27 shots. Uh, can you, can you, and maybe you've already done this, so apologies if you have, but uh, can you rank for us where that ranks, I guess, historically? Behind Tiger at Pebble. That's it. That's it. Oh, my God. Uh, and I should say, not that's it, but I have stats since 1970. Okay. And that's, and that's pretty much the pinnacle. Uh, where does Phil rank in that? I think he's fifth place. No what way. The leaderboard looked like before... Uh, before last Sunday was Tiger at Pebble, Watson and Nicholas dueling the sun, and I think Phil slots in right behind those two. Wow! So Phil had the fifth best performance ever in a major and didn't win. Yeah, and slightly aided by the weather, right? Yeah. There's a difference. There's a difference there, so maybe that's a shot or two. But it's top ten all time. So it's even. <laughs> you, I'm sure you heard this. People quoting that his score would have won however many yeah. Open Championships. His score would have won, you know, all name the tournament. All of them, yeah. All time, and he probably would have won. So, but, I mean, as shocking as that is, Jack is also in that top three or four or whatever. I don't know, remember the order there. And he also didn't win that duel. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so it's right there with that with that performance. God, that blows my mind. That, that's, I, so that's, it's... They're talking about him mourning this loss and whatnot. I don't understand that at all. I mean, golfers are all about controlling what they can control. I think he's he should sleep very well with what he did. Isn't that? It's easy for me to say just sitting here, but don't you just kind of shrug your shoulders at that and like, look, Stenson gave perhaps the second best performance in major championship history, and just say, you know what? Not my week. Not my luck. Yeah, exactly. Uh, one of my colleagues at at Fifteenth Club. Uh, Aaron Kelly had a tweet uh, over the weekend that Stenson and Phil were the number one pairing on Saturday and Sunday. <laughs> so that's just the, how well they separated themselves from the field. And I don't, I don't even think it was close. I think they were beating the other pairings by five, six, seven shots. Yeah, Graham Dillette's prediction on Sunday that the winner was going to come from outside the top two might go down in history as one of the worst calls of all time. Um, that five percent shot before the day too. So. <laughs> Way to play the odds. You, you, you've got you got numbers for everything. You're blowing my mind right now. Um, so yeah, like I'd mentioned, I'm a, I'm a big fan of statistics. Well, actually, first, sorry, I, what where does your background and your understanding of statistics come from? Is it something you studied in college, or just a love for the game of golf in particular and stats, or how did this how did this all begin for you? Um, I don't know how how common this is, but I was a little bored at times in college, so I would look for side projects to work on, and and there was this guy who was was doing golf stats at a very basic level. This was back before Mark Brody had even had even published his strokes gain paper, I think. Um, so 2009, 2010. So I just got into it and. And it kept me interested, and I kept exploring it. That's really it. You know, it's been something I've been interested in for, you know, five, six, seven years. Do you have a relationship with Mark Brody at all? Yeah, we've talked before. Okay, that's a, that's a guy. Yeah, I obviously, would... respect respect the hell out of his work, and he he moved uh, moved golf analytics twenty years for you know into the future. Yeah. Um, okay, this may be tough for you to rank just three of these, but I, I was I, let me know if that makes it easier or harder on you. But I'd like to know three things that the general media or narratives the general media kind of pushes 
that is just flat out wrong from a statistical, statistical perspective. And the one that the easiest, the low-hanging fruit there is drive for show, putt for dough. And they people love to use that like with DJ or something like that, which I find absolutely ridiculous. But what are some, some examples that of things that you commonly hear either media people say or amateur golfers say or anything that just don't don't stack up when you actually look at the underlying numbers? Uh, I think... I can't really rank these. I'm going to go yeah. stream of consciousness. That's fine. That's fine. Um, but I think one is you often hear, you know, lay up to the money yardage or lay up to a yardage you're comfortable with. Yeah. And uh, uh, one other uh, golf analyst, uh, Richie Hunt, uh, Richie3jack on Twitter, mm-hmm. he looked at this in his pro golf synopsis uh, last year, I think it was, and he found that you don't really want to lay up to a money yardage. You want to find the ideal yardage if you're going to lay up, of course, which I can't even believe we're discussing this right now. I'm uh, editing this whole part out. It's fine. <laughs> right. So uh, so he found that depending on the hole, there's a certain 30 or 40-yard window that players who lay up to that area score better. And okay. uh, and I think that's a, that's a big one because you always hear, and I don't know why I'm going to – bring up a specific name but i feel like it's gary coke a lot on nbc (laughs) saying saying players should lay up you know just hit an iron to you know 125 or or something like that when it really really depends the more i look at it on a course by course hole by hole basis you know you really need to look at is it easier to score from 75 yards is it easier to you know hit driver on this hole and even if you end up in the rough you know, short left of the green, that might be a better play than, than having a wedge in. Yeah, and, I mean, obviously there's factors that, like, some holes, if you're hitting from 50 yards to a tuck pin that's in the front, that may be really, uh, might not be able to stop it in time or spin it in time. So there obviously are obviously factors that, that vary, but in general, the, the numbers show that it's just better to be closer to the hole rather than, than laying back to a, an even yardage or a full, a full swing is what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely, and I guess I guess the main point in all of this is it depends on the player, it depends on the course, it depends on the hole. It's not as easy as yeah, of course. You know, just I want to pick a number that I'm comfortable with. A lot of it is if you're a player, um, get comfortable with the correct play, and don't just worry about well, I always hit it from 85, or I always hit it from 110, or or whatever. Yeah. Um, I know people love to talk about Henrik Stenson's three wood and how big of a weapon that is. And obviously I, I, I think you would agree that it is a weapon. You did some analysis in the past though, and that he tends to potentially be over reliant on that three wood. Can you tell us a little bit about, I mean, maybe not the best timing on this considering you just <laughs> gave the, uh, the second best major performance in history, but can you give us a bit of background as to what that analysis that you performed showed? Yeah, essentially, and this is something that I'm still not sure if I was working directly with Stenson that I would advise him to do, but what I looked at is I looked at how well he drove the ball with driver, and this was, I'm pretty sure, looking at 2014 and part of 2015, and basically it showed that he drives it as long and as straight as guys like Rory and DJ and Adam Scott, the like really cream of the crop upper echelon uh, drivers of the golf ball hmm. and obviously he hits three wood great he was you know stood out as as one of the best hitting hitting three wood but his numbers with driver indicated that 
if he drove it or hit driver more than he could gain on the field there. Um, and for someone who drives it as long and as straight as he does, if he used driver more, he would rank higher than top 25 in, in strokes gain driving. Hmm. Um, okay. How about all right? Any, so you have the, the the layup yardage. Is there anything else out there that they're they're driving that at us that just doesn't make a lot of sense? I mean, I think the the more low, low hanging fruit would be driving accuracy percentage or greens and regulation percentage. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty safe to say that you t- you take those stats and toss them right out the window. Is that accurate? It's something that, in terms of if I'm telling a player uh, or working with a player and judging how well. They hit their irons. Greens and regulation are, is not at the top of the list yeah. in terms of it. But it's obviously the good iron players are hitting more greens, right? Um, it's just not. That's not why they're the good iron players. They're hitting it closer. They're staying out of trouble. Um, all that sort of stuff. But to uh, to look at like the narrative that's always pushed is. Uh, the announcers always act like hitting it in the rough on certain courses is a is a like a death sentence, and it really it really isn't, yeah. especially on certain courses. The one that always drives me crazy is Riviera. Every year, they someone will talk about how the rough there is so hard to play out of the Kakuya. The Kakuya, exactly. It's and I'm sure it's part partly because of the exotic name. But it, how it's how it's tough to, to control your ball out of that. But if you look year on year and compare from similar length shots, how well players score from the rough versus the fairway, it's one of the smallest differences on tour. Wow, interesting. And it's just because that course is so hard. The green complexes are so hard that it looks like it's it's harming you from the rough. But really, it's just the whole course is hard. Wow. Um, all right, you were blowing my mind with these stats. I could do. I I, I want to do this again with you. Uh, unfortunately, this this podcast is already going to run about an hour and fifteen minutes is with my other guests as well. So uh, I promise next time I'm going to come more prepared with questions, and we are definitely going to do this again. Hopefully for a full hour if you can give us the time. But um, based on any analysis so far, do you have a pick for this week? It's tough because I really want to pick Rory yeah. because I think he's had the best season and he's also, you know, kind of due for that major. Yeah, I think he's. I think he is going. I think he is going to get it done this week. He's the most likely to win, in my opinion. But one thing I look at with him is he tends to be better on the courses with more par fives because that's where he separates himself from the field. Mm-hmm. Rory on par fives is is the nuclear weapon in golf. Um, so with only one reachable par five, and you know maybe he can even get to that six hundred fifty yarder, uh, which would be a big advantage. But it's Rory with the caveat that the course isn't perfect for him. Okay, all right, I'll take that. I'll buy that. But all right, Jake Nichols, thank you so much for your time, man. Uh, I will let you out on that prediction that you guarantee that Rory's going to win the PGA. And uh, we will do it again soon. Thank you so much for the time. Appreciate it, man. Yeah, no problem. Thanks, Chris. You bet it. All right, that was it from our friend Jake Nichols. Uh, really, really enjoyed talking to him about his insights in the game, statistical analysis, 
Um, big appreciation for Jake for being available at the last minute. Uh, you can follow the project that he's now involved in uh, with the 15th Club. It's at 15th Club on Twitter. It's at 15th Club. And he is at Jal Nichols, J A L. N-I-C-H-O-L-S on Twitter. I promise you'll enjoy the the aspect he brings to the game. And uh, the statistical stuff, it's it's not it's not limited to that. He has excellent takes on the game as well. So um, I also just record I recorded this first actually with DJ Pihowski. Um, he got bumped to second ranking on the on this recording because as he admitted he knew nothing about the golf course and uh, I thought the the stuff with Jake was was uh, excellent and deserved to be heard first. Sorry, DJ. But getting to this now, DJ Pihowski from Scratch.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Major Championship Week. It seems like pretty much almost literally every other week right now is a Major Championship Week. It's PGA Championship Week. Uh, we have with us from Scratch TV. Mr. DJ Pihowski. Uh DJ, what is going on in Florida today? Uh, not much. I'm uh, sitting in, in beautiful St. Augustine overlooking the World Golf Hall of Fame. Uh, just, you know, seeing if someone can punch their ticket maybe this week to, uh, to join, join the crew. God, you were just going to fit like right in with the CBS broadcast there. Like that was, <laughs> that was a Nancism. It took less than like 15 seconds before our first Nancism on the podcast. But, yeah, exactly. Um... So the first thing I, I asked you is uh, if you wanted to do a PGA Championship podcast, you said, I don't know anything about the course, and i got, I got to be full disclosure, I don't either. So if you're tuning into this to hear about the course, uh, we're probably I, I, I'm still pending recording this with a couple other guests, but maybe later in the podcast we can talk about Baltus Raw. But uh, for, for even though your disclaimer was that you didn't know anything about it, uh, what do you know about Baltus Raw, if anything? Um, I know the murder story. I think that's about it. Well, tell that because I don't. I just heard it a little bit today, and I don't really know it. The Cliff Notes version uh, is basically there was a farmer named Baltus Roll who lived on the land in like eighteen forty something or other, uh, who was just brutally murdered. And uh, full disclosure, I didn't read the rest of the story, but somehow uh, the place was named Baltus Roll after that. So. Um, that's that's pretty much the extent of my knowledge, you know. Phil uh, Lee Jansen, I think. Lee Jansen uh, won that. Oh, I don't even remember that. So I, I mean, I remember a little bit of 05, but that was a Monday finish, and uh, I feel like that not a lot of people saw the end of that or really remember. It was Phil's second win, uh, second major win. So it wasn't like his big breakthrough. Um, two two uh, par five finishing holes. I know Tiger made a huge run at the end at Phil near the end of the 05 one, but that, that's literally. About uh, as far as it goes for me understanding Valtus Roll, uh, I talked to a couple guys this week. Uh, what they said was both of them separately said everything is right in front of you. And there's like no tricks to it. Um, not even a course you feel like you need to go there early and play a bunch uh, to learn the ropes. And it, it's it's pretty wide open, wide fairways. And uh, one guy said he thought it would favor the bombers. So knowing that, do you have a pick for this weekend? First of all, and with that information, does that change any of it? I mean, I pretty much pick Phil or Rory for every major, uh, so I don't really see changing changing that strategy. Uh, although obviously it hasn't worked for a little while at least, but um, no, I, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've honestly I picked. Uh, I was really big on Phil at the Masters this year, and I was really big on him. I think he was number what was he? He was like three back when he got to number eight on Friday, and I'm and he was like pin high in two and I'm like oh this is like this is perfect he's gonna be right there and then I don't know what he did he put it off the green on nine and hit like five balls in the water on the back nine missed the cut 
Um, so I was huge on Phil at uh, Oakmont. That obviously didn't go very well. Uh, didn't pick Phil at all. Didn't even think about him at the Open. Um, and, and that turned out to also be a mistake. So maybe maybe things will balance out this week, and uh, and he can kind of finally get everything to click at once at a place where he won last time we were here. And and by the way, uh, we've we've talked about this a little bit. Like we're we're putting together a scratch piece. I think it's going to come out tomorrow, Wednesday. But how crazy is it that you know it's been eleven years and Phil is still like one of the favorites to win at a at another major where he where he's basically the defending champion. I mean that's like. That blows my mind. Like, I don't know if you've seen the, the rest of the leaderboard from 2005. Actually, I have it. I've just pulled it up. But it's Thomas Bjorn, Steve Elkington, Davis Love, Tiger, Pat Perez, Retief Goosen, Michael Campbell, Jeff Ogilvy, and then actually Vijay Singh, Dudley Hart, Steve Flesh, David Toms. Like, that gives you a sense of, like, where golf was in 2005. And the fact that Phil is still, like, coming off a historic major performance that he didn't win but was still – pretty bonkers is like just mind-blowing to me that's like the most exciting thing going into this tournament i feel like uh i feel like and I, I want to get back to the scratch stuff here in a second but i feel i was doing some random um look at old pgas today <clears throat> today first of all i'm i'm floored that you left off the name ted purdy off that list of top 10 guys from the 2005 pga championship but uh yeah, yeah. kenny perry tom pernice um, I love looking more at like if you go to the Wikipedia pages, you can see uh, who were like the first and second round leaders. And uh, so naturally, whenever I go look up um, old old major championships, I, I inevitably go down a tiger spiral and uh, ended up with the fact today that um, so so Phil is the, the leading active player. I don't really consider Tiger active right now. Leading active player with five majors. Big Cat has five majors where he shot at least 18 under par. That was the stat that I came across today. <laughs> Four of them he shot 18 under, one of them 19 under, two of them were PGAs. Um, and then one thing that stuck out to me, the first round leader after the 2006 PGA Championship was Chris Riley and Lucas Glover. I just found that special. How that 2006 U.S. Ryder Cup team lost, I won't know. I bet you didn't think when I started out on this take that I would end up with the 2006 Ryder Cup team. <laughs> but here we are. It only took us like six minutes to get to Chris Riley in this podcast, to be honest. <laughs> no, Rory, no speed. We're going right to Chris Riley. But uh, hey, last time you were on the podcast was back in April. Uh, you helped me out a lot. I was having a really tough time uh, coping with what happened at Augusta National this year. Um, you were transitioning into a new role with Scratch TV, um, so let's assume that people weren't that not everyone listening to this podcast was tuned into that show. But uh, what it, what what is a, briefly your background before getting into Scratch, and what are you doing with Scratch now, and what have your first few uh, months with Scratch been like? Yeah, so my background, I was doing uh, most of the most of the PGA Tour branded social stuff that you've seen over the last like four or so years. Um, at least up until the last couple months. So that was, you know, running kind of the content side of things on at PGA Tour on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and, and all that good stuff. And uh, so, yeah, that led into, you know, there was kind of an opening to, to kind of rethink what we were doing with Scratch, which is uh, kind of the tour's play to basically basically kind of create some, some more kind of offbeat, younger-focused, I guess you could call it, content. And uh, so I felt like I was a, a pretty good fit for that, and, and so did the folks here. So 
so yeah, I jumped in with the Scratch team about maybe four months ago or so, however long it's been now, and uh, kind of came up with a little bit of a different a different voice for the channels and a different kind of focus for for what we're doing. And uh, yeah, it's been super fun over the last the last couple months. We've rolled out some of our our kind of original content ideas, like big things like Adventures in Golf. If anybody's seen that, has has been a really popular thing that we've done. Uh, which is basically a 10-part kind of, I guess you call it kind of like an adventure travel series. It's, it's almost kind of like a parts unknown with Anthony Bourdain type of thing for golf. Uh, we have our host kind of bounces around and, and goes to Mumbai and uh, Dubai and Compton and Portland and all these kinds of different crazy places to go show basically you know what the game of golf is like around the world. Um, so we've been doing that and then just kind of doing some more like different day-to-day type of stuff and Kind of some some dumb fun uh, things that that hopefully make make golf a little bit more fun. I mean, is it as fun as it seems to just kind of have unlimited access to all archive videos? And uh, I mean, how often how often does it like you start out with one idea and then up un- uncovering something else and then you end up doing something completely different? That's that's exactly what it is. We have <laughs> one. Uh, we started. You know, basically what happens is, like, we start with a name or someone, like, we should do something on this person, and we just start digging into the archives, and there's just, that's when you realize kind of how impressive the PGA Tour is as an organization, is when you dive in and you start seeing all this footage that we have, and, like, that's where one, we had a tweet last week that was, like, it was uh, Charles Barkley, and this was one, like, right up your alley, I think you retweeted it even, but it was, like, it was basically Charles Barkley, uh, yelling at Tiger Woods about how much he hates his club twirl and saying, if you ever did that to me in a tournament, I'd punch you in the back of the head. <laughs> so just having an outlet to, to share all this just dumb stuff is uh, like just my kind of dream come true. Yeah, you probably that wasn't going to the top of the list of things you'd be tweeting from the PGA Tour account, I would imagine. But uh... No, I don't think that's, that's content that necessarily needs to, needs to make people better fans out there, at least on the PGA Tour side. So, from a PGA Tour perspective, though, I mean, really, the PGA Tour doesn't run any of the majors. What is a major week like for, like the for the like a PGA Championship? What is that like for PGA Tour employees? Like, what is their what is what is their role? Their for their for oh, can't get it out. Their fulfillment for the week. Yeah, it's actually changed a lot, even like since I've started. It's kind of funny. I think that you know, just the way that the digital world has worked and kind of become so much more prevalent at the tour over the last kind of four or five years. Uh, I think that, you know, it was funny when I first started and we had, uh, I started in like late March of 2012. And so the masters was like kind of one of the first tournaments that, that I was helping to work on. And I was asking the same question, like, you know, what is it, what is it like around here? And they're like, Oh, like everybody goes on vacation. And like, that's like a week to kind of like, take off and tune out i'm like oh my gosh that that doesn't seem like that's gonna be a thing for our team like i feel like we're probably gonna be ramped up more than ever and obviously that's been the case so um so for our team it's it's much different and and honestly it kind of makes sense when you think about it for the rest of the tour there's there's a lot of people where the majors are kind of kind of off weeks and and kind of time to catch up and and worry about other stuff and for the digital team it, it couldn't be you know, further from the truth. The the thing that's interesting, and this week is actually an exception. I think that we've we've kind of worked out with with the PGA kind of some initiatives over the last couple of years and figured out ways to kind of share broadcast rights and that kind of stuff. So I think that the PGA Tour team actually will have 
have some highlights and some stuff on social like they usually do this week, which is cool because we don't usually have that for majors. But, uh, but yeah, for it, it's definitely a week to kind of get creative and think of some more outside-the-box type of ways to cover things because that's obviously usually our advantage uh, week to week. It's, you know, we have the video rights and we have access to stuff on site. And so, so yeah, it's a little different on the major weeks, but it's, it's fun. It's, it's always cool to, like, you know, that's when the conversation kind of spikes around everything and everybody's you know, just wants to talk about golf. So it's fun to kind of be in the middle of that and figure out creative ways to do it. Well, when you look at um, back to the PGA Championship specifically, um, obviously, I don't think there's there's not many people out there that won't rank this as the fourth major championship in priority of what they would want to win. Um, but where, where do you where do you I guess what is your take or where do you see the PGA Championship's current standing? Do you think it something needs to change with it, or are you a, a fan of the PGA Championship? Or where what is your uh, Heading into PGA Championship week, are you excited, or are you just kind of like, okay, this, this is the end of major season, let's let's do this last one? Yeah, I like it. I'm, I'm always someone who gets really fired up uh, about trying to inject you know different formats into golf, and I love the match play, and I love team events, and, and all that kind of stuff, and so I feel like... I feel like I'm always kind of a little bit hypocritical on this that, you know, I'm, I'm always kind of urging for different formats and stuff. And, and a lot of people I know have had the take that, you know, the PGA should go back to match play or the PGA should move to Asia or whatever. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I just feel like there's so many, there's so many things in place that kind of make the system work how it does and, and kind of makes the golf calendar feel right a little bit. That I feel like shaking things up would would do more harm than good, and so I I do like it, and I think that they they go to a lot of great courses that are fun to watch. I know uh, people had differing opinions of Whistling Straits, but you know, being there last year and and kind of walking the grounds, it's one of those places that architecture people always get you know kind of freaked out about that you know this is this isn't natural and this isn't how this land is supposed to look and blah blah blah. This is gimmicky, but when you when you get out there and you see it, like, it's just like kind of takes your breath away to see that place and see, you know, things like that. And I feel like they, they do a good job of getting to kind of some of those different courses. I would definitely love to see them get more like towards the West coast and inject some of those courses into it. I feel like, you know, every time we do that in golf, like I, I feel like that is always positive. Uh, so that would be my only critique is maybe get a little more creative with the courses and maybe, you know, get west of the Mississippi River every now and again. As a European viewer, I'm going to respectfully disagree with that last <laughs> sentiment because the 2015 U.S. Open was a disaster with the sun coming up as Dustin Johnson was missing a four-footer to make a playoff. But um, I think I, I, I can agree. I think they tend to, um, and I, I don't know, forgive me, who who owns Baltusrol, right? Because I know, like, doesn't the PGA of America own Whistling Straits or don't they own... Um, they, they tend to go to the courses that they own. Do they own Valhalla too? I don't. I, don't, I forget what the what the. I'm not. I don't pretend to be that plugged in and know all the ownership, but they I tend to know. favor certain courses. I thought they had a stake in Valhalla, but I could totally be wrong. Uh, I don't think they have any stake in Whistling Straits. I think that's all the Kohler family and. Yeah, that I know that. Although yeah. I could be wrong because they're also doing a Ryder Cup there too. So I'm. I'm really not sure. They do. I, I think Balt, I think Balt, Farmer Baltus Roll owns it. Uh, that's as far as that's current as my knowledge is on Baltus Roll. 
<laughs> do you have a uh, so do you have, you like I don't even know what to call what you did in the U.S. Open on Twitter um, with Oakmont and then and, and mixing in puns, different puns or memes. I don't even know what that is. Do you like, have, I've, I feel like I have to I have to explain explain this or something a little bit because I got a lot of vitriol and like unfollows and stuff from it. Uh, but basically what I was trying to do, and I thought, I thought you of all people would appreciate this, is when all the rain started to fall, I saw like 12 tweets in a row from 12 different people that were all like more like soaked mod. And I was like, all right, I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. So the, the rest of the goal for the rest of the week was just trying to come up with as many as I could. Um, so I guess nobody really got the performance art piece of, of, of that. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was definitely not, uh, not trying to drive people away. Um, I think that was my comment that you just, I think that was my comment was you're just going to try to try to do everything from scratch now and just drive your own account right into the ground. But yeah, I think I, I still don't really understand why anybody would ever follow me on Twitter. I think that's one of the, one of the great mysteries of, uh, of golf Twitter, but I appreciate everybody who does. Uh, no, it was it was entertaining for a while, I would say, and then uh, and then it was just like, oh my god, how far is he going to stretch this, man? I mean, like, take take a hint, man. Like, this is this is over. So, I'll be curious to see what you come up with this week. But um, yeah, we're gonna have to see what the narratives are this week, what we can play into. Yeah, yeah, you got to We got to well. Are the, nar- are the narratives? I've been pretty unplugged. What are people saying? Well, uh, so I listened to I listened to Bacon and Kevin Van Valkenburg today talk a bit about Rory and the uh, the Golf Channel piece that was not even going to call it piece the Morning Drive segment whatever the doctor was making. Is, is Rory going to wear a shirt this week or no? I don't know. He, he apparently takes a ton of shirtless pics on Instagram, even though he's not had one single one posted on his Instagram page, but. Uh, maybe he deletes the shirtless ones. I don't know. Uh, but the take was just like something about Rory's attitude for the year being less than stellar and based on the fact that he's in commercials. And, you know, and I, he's like, my advice for him would be to not be standing in the Hall of Fame. And it was honestly just like one of the worst like takes you could hear. So I feel like people, maybe just because I just listened to that podcast with Bacon and Van Valkenburg, but I feel like people are talking a bit about Rory and. Still talking about his comments from the Open Championship and the whole what's wrong with Rory. and So I feel like that's kind of an air of going into it. And it's going to be if he doesn't win this PGA, as ridiculous as it sounds, like two straight years without a major, what's going on with this guy. So that's that's kind of what I'm – that's the big story, I guess, for me going into this. I don't. Does that register with you? Um, a little bit. I mean, it, it's interesting. You know, this is kind of always my, my fallback or my go-to is that – you know, there are only four of these things a year. And so it's funny, like, just to, you know, there's there's how many players that can realistically win a major every time. I mean, probably 60 at the Masters, 50, and, you know, 100 at, at the other majors. And so, I mean, there's only four to go around. Like, there's going to be some dry spells, no doubt. Uh, and on, on the uh, note of the, the Hall of Fame commercial... That had to be filmed in like 2013, yeah. probably. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <right? laughs> like every time it airs, it's not more work for him. Like, <laughs> he just filmed it once and probably like recu- recuperated since then. I'm sure. And, until Tron got it banned, he started a petition, <laughs> and now I, I literally have not seen the commercial once since Tron made the petition to to have that commercial <laughs> commercial banned. The fact that Rory had to acknowledge it in a press conference, I think, sealed the deal that uh, Omega was never going to show that thing again. So, 
Uh, and they they may have run out of money too from hearing that thing so many times. My uh, my other uh, kind of narrative that I don't really get, you know, I, I think people who are I don't even not even calling it criticizing, but you know, what's wrong with Rory? What's wrong with Rory? Like. I'm kind of curious to see what Spieth does this week. I know he he seemed a little testy at uh, at the Open. Uh, just you know some of the questions he answered and stuff. I'm I'm definitely curious to see what he does. So I think that's kind of one of the one of mine to watch going in here. I think that's that's a narrative that's probably well is definitely uh, hugely unjustified, but also kind of interesting. Yeah, no, I'm with you. Um, I think I, I'm a bit surprised that he didn't follow up. After what happened in Augusta, I was on the side of I think he's going to be like top five at the U.S. Open. I was surprised he didn't do well there. Not as surprised he didn't play as well at the British Open. Um, just for a myriad of reasons. It's such a different style of golf. And I was actually really surprised he played so well last year at it, actually. Um, even, though, even though I did pick him to win it. So I don't know if that's a very consistent take. But... Um, so I, I would I would be like to see some bounce back from him just so we don't have to do a whole off season full of narratives of that. But I, what I wanted to ask was, are is it just like inevitable based on the number of major championship trophies that are given out every year that we have to just kind of shift around? And I say we, not meaning you and me, obviously, but the media has to shift around to just pick a guy to kind of put the focus on for why haven't you won one in a while? <laughs> Yeah, totally. That, that's what I think I'm getting at is like, you know, there's only there's only so many to go around. And like, there's what am I trying to say? There's there's only there's so few majors and so much just vapid space to fill yeah. Uh, <laughs> that. Yeah, it's just a horrible combo for somebody who hasn't won, you know, one out of five or one out of six or whatever. And it, it's just uh, it's super interesting, I guess, <laughs> from like a sociological standpoint. Yeah, I mean, how many guys have won? Let's say Rory wins. How many guys have won five majors by the time they're twenty-seven? Is it like literally like three or four guys? Yeah, I mean, is it that many? I, I don't like Tiger and Jack and, and Jack and would be Rory. Has anybody else? I don't. I don't think so. I don't know Arnie. I don't know. I don't know. I have to look. Like all, it seems like so many people who have won more than you know six to eight or whatever just started winning them later so like it, it just seems like that company's got to be super small uh right, i'm gonna put you on the spot with this one and I, it's in response to this I'll, I'll let you think about it first if you needed some uh, to some time but what would you say is like the worst take you've ever had because i think i remember what mine is if you need me to say mine first so you can think about yours let me know <laughs> um man somebody's gonna go back through my tweets and find something <laughs> way worse i'm sure mine but, uh, mine's before twitter so i'm good but okay. I, uh, mine was after he won the 2011 U.S. Okay, Open. I said that he had a better chance to break Nicholas's record than Tiger did, which might actually be true from a percentage perspective. But like, I thought Rory was going to win 20 majors after the 2011 U.S. Open. Yeah, it was. Uh, he definitely set the bar pretty high, winning by eight. Um, how old was he when he won that? Twenty-one. Yeah, that was crazy, man. And he was like, he was on the cover, cover of SI, and there was the whole Rory era, and like, that was awesome. That was the first major I ever went to. Actually, it was it was that week, and yeah, it was totally just a different, like, different feeling than any of them I've I've still been to. Um, yeah, I think my worst one, and and technically it's still true. Um, I remember saying a couple years ago that 
I don't think uh, Phil was ever going to win again. And I still, like, you know, technically he hasn't won. I think I said that a couple years ago. Uh, I think his last win is what, Phoenix? No, his last win was the British Open in 2015. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, that's right. No, you're right. So I, I definitely said it before he won the British. So it's it's concretely <laughs> false. Uh, but yeah, I was I was pretty low on Phil, and uh, you know, just thinking like very similar to things that we've seen, you know, over the last couple months. But just you know, kind of a when it goes, it goes, and Phil will never get it back type thing. And he totally could win this week, and totally could win four times next year, and and who knows? So I think that's probably my worst. Yeah, um, oh, well, that's not that's not terrible. That's not a terrible one to bear. But I think I even said at the uh, shoot, that wasn't even a year ago. Like going into the President's Cup, I was like done with Phil. I couldn't believe that he was going to be on the team. Yeah, Pro- protested when he made the team and thought it was ridiculous. And I w- will will fully own that I was wrong on that when he played great at the President's Cup and he he's an integral role in the in the Ryder Cup team this year as well. But um, that is pretty crazy to think about, though. You know, if it was. Two years ago, or whenever he was kind of at his lowest point, which I, I don't even really remember when that was, but yeah, just thinking that he would be like going into this Ryder Cup. I mean, he's definitely one of the guys I'm I'm most excited to see, and one of the guys that I think is going to carry the team most out of anyone. That's kind of a crazy thought that you probably wouldn't have wouldn't have thought you would have a couple years ago. Yeah, I think that's uh, unfortunately also a bit of a concerning thought um, <laughs> for for the for the U.S.'s chances, but. Uh, all right, I got a tough question for you that for you specifically will be tough because you got to you got to toe the line here being a PGA Tour scratch employee. Um, it was a question. The line's, line's starting to break up. <laughs> <laughs> You're just gonna just gonna hang up the line and not even answer this one. Um, I proposed. That I, I'm trying. To, I'm working on a preview this week, and I I wanted to fill it with a couple mailbag questions, but I got so many questions that I'm gonna let this spill over into the podcast. Uh, Matt Matt Gallegos or Matt G- Gallegos. There's a double L there. Don't know if it's Spanish. Um, asks how long before the players officially matters more than the PGA. Hmm, that is a tough one. Uh, <laughs> well, Chris, both tournaments are hugely important in their own. Way. Uh, <laughs> I think that I think they're you know obviously it's an interesting question, and I think that they do totally like matter in their own way i don't think i don't buy any of the talk that you know the players is ever going to be a major and why don't they just have five majors and blah 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 like i don't nobody at the tour i, I know everybody thinks like people at the tour are saying that or like riding for it to be the fifth major but like that couldn't be further from the truth i've just never heard anybody at the tour ever say that like i think they all we all kind of know like the player's place and where it is and it's it's not a major but it is by far the best non-major event. I mean, I think it's just totally different, and the vibe on site is different, and, like, I don't know if you've ever been to it, but uh, I know Tron was here this year, and, like, I think he'd probably say a lot of the same thing, but it is, like, a totally different event, and so it is hard to compare the two. I know it's it seems like it would be easy to, but I do think it's, it's just different, and I think the PGA will always be a major, and I think the players will always not be a major, and that's just kind of the world we live in. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 it's interesting to hear you say that you don't feel like anyone from that side is pushing it to be a major. I don't know who is really either. I don't think the players are. I don't think. No, that's what I. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't know where it comes from. Probably a media contrived thing, but um, 
It doesn't. It, it, the players are just the players. It's probably the the biggest non major event. That's fine. That doesn't need. Not everything has to be a major. If like, I mean, the, I think the women have five majors now, and I, and now no one ever knows what major they're playing when they do play. Five's too many. Fours. I know. I know the number of majors has changed over the course of history and whatnot. But let's keep it the way it is. Things are fine. I'm all about innovation and change, but. Players not a major. That, that's that's we're keeping that the way it is. But yeah, I think it just it just gets weird. Like you know, when you try to revise something like that. Like let's say that we made the players a major next year, and everybody agreed. Okay, starting now, the players is a major. Okay, so Tiger technically has sixteen, and Jack had twenty one, and all, like all these different Craig Perks now has a major. Like <laughs> all these things. It's just like I don't know. It's just it's so weird to me to to think about that conversation and like it just seems like kind of a lazy a lazy uh not very well thought out take to to try to argue for it what if it turns out that like sergio is just like back channeling his way to getting this narrative started like (laughs) he's he's, Uh, kucher would be a major champion then too actually (laughs) i would love that kj Choi, major champion yeah exactly um yeah that one needs to be. That one needs to be a little more well thought out. Um, all right, we're gonna get you out of here on this because I think we have at least one, if not two, guests remaining on the pod this week. But um, Jared Orlando wants to know what your take is or thought on the PGA Championship potentially being hosted overseas. I don't know. Like I, I think I t- talked about it earlier. Like I, I just don't see that. I don't know. I don't see that happening. Like it, it's just so hard for the golf calendar to like make that work i mean just picture you know in order to put the pga in a spot over like look at what we have with the schedule this year and how tough it is to get from event to event when you have all these big things kind of crammed in here at once like just the thought of dropping something off the schedule or moving something around or you know doing all those things are like so hard to do that it's just you know i I don't know i think it would be tough to pull it off i mean i know i would i would watch it and they would probably have huge crowds and stuff, but I just, I don't know. I feel like we play a lot of golf around the world anyways. And like, I don't know that that's, you know, the biggest, uh, hashtag grow the game type (laughs) thing that you can, that you can do. Like, I I just, I don't know. I feel like that would be another, another one that's kind of overly exaggerated. I feel like would, you know, people kind of put too much importance on like, well, if we had this event here, everything would change. And I just, I don't know if that's the case. Yeah, I think uh, one major factor as to why it's not going to happen. Uh, do you know who runs this event? It's the PGA right. of America. Well, yeah, exactly. No, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know. I'm assuming they don't govern over all of North and South America. It's probably just a name only. But I'm guessing they're not going to be that encouraged to have their ratings dip horribly by moving the event overseas to Asia and have it played in the middle of the night here. Um, I don't think they're moving it to Europe. South America, I don't see any real benefit to that. Um, it seems like a silly, silly idea to me. I don't think the PGA of America is, is in the business to grow the game nearly as much as, say, like the USGA is or something like that. So I don't understand the argument for it really at all. I think um, I've made the point that this this was the year, if any, to move the, this event temporarily to like March, let's say, or or February even. Uh, with the condensed schedule, I have no idea if Augusta would let that happen or if there's any rules on that. or what. I'm sure – that's actually a good question I should ask Jeff Shackelford sometime. I'm sure he knows the answer as to why that couldn't happen, but I feel like they may have missed an opportunity to do that this year. That's the only change I would ever potentially make to the PGA. No way would I go match play. Um, it's an exciting tournament, really fun tournament. Perhaps some of the strongest memories I have of watching majors have been the PGA, so keep it. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I think the other thing, you know, whenever people talk about moving the schedule around and like, well, why don't, you know, let's move the PGA to, to February or to March or whatever. Um, like the idea of, uh, I, I don't think playing in Wisconsin or New Jersey or any of the other places that the PGA likes to go are going to be very fun in March. So you, you're basically like ruling out so many courses and like, then you're talking about either ruling out courses or like, having to constantly be changing the date, like, is it this week or is it this week or this month or this month or whatever. And so, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just, that's, that's kind of what I was getting at at the beginning is like, I think there's just too many barriers to changing it that like, it's just, it's, it's the way it is kind of for a reason. I feel like. Yeah. That's a good point there too. Cause I, I don't know when it was decided to go to Baltusrol. It may have been before the Olympics were even committed or they were even committed to the Olympics. So you can't play golf in February and, um, and, and, and New Jersey. And there's not a lot of places in February that can, have enough daylight to, to fit, uh, you know, is it a full 156-player field this week? Uh, yeah, I think so. Okay. With, what, 20, 20 club pros, I think? Something like that. So, yeah. no Mike Weir, though. All right, DJ, I'll get you out of that before I get you in any trouble. Uh, thank you for being available rather last minute. And, um, yeah, best of luck with your – is your pick Rory or Phil? Did you make an official one? I don't remember. Sorry. Uh, let's say Rory. Okay. Let's say Rory. I don't, want to, I don't want to damage Phil's chances. Way out on the limb, DJ Piehowski. Uh, follow DJ on Twitter, at DJ Pie, and uh, we will hopefully uh, catch up with you again soon, man. Thanks for the time. Bye, right, buddy. See ya. Later. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yes! Yeah. Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect 